coming up on this week's media project. Join Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lomarado, and me, Judy Patrick, filling in for Rex Smith. We'll talk about whether Donald Trump will return to Twitter after Elon Musk says he's welcome back. We'll talk about leaks involving the top secret intelligence the U.S. is giving Ukraine in its defense against Russia. And we'll talk about the Pulitzer Prizes. All that and much more coming up on The Media Project next. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Welcome to The Media Project, an inside look at media coverage of current events. I'm Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. I'm filling in for our usual host, Rex Smith. He's the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Joining us this week is WAMC's CEO, commentator, columnist, publisher, etc., 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 Alan Shartok. How you doing, Alan? Well, I'm good, but you know, I think it's going to be formidable here because at least one of our panelists has said we've got to keep him in line, <laughs> and I think there may be a little sexism going on around here. What pronouns do you use? <laughs> <laughs> and we shall see. Also with us today, former editor, investigative journalist, and U Albany professor Rosemary Armeo. Welcome, Rosemary. Thank you. Happy to be here, as always. And Barbara Lombardo, journalism professor at the University of Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record in Troy. Thanks for being with us as well. Happy to be here. So our first topic will be the coverage of the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court. The coverage has gone in many different directions over the last week, but are they the right directions? We've seen right-wing media focused on where the leak came from, and, and then in more recent days about the ferocity of the protests outside the Supreme Court Justice's house, also Susan Collins' house. So, Alan, what do you think? Are we covering this correctly? Well, 
clearly, you know, editors are very bright and smart people. And they know what people want to read and will read. And I have great respect for the people who put newspapers together and make these decisions. Rose, Rosemary is giving me... I'm getting ready yeah. for the I know, but. I know, but. Rosemary is giving me the, the look. I. <laughs> No, I, you know, I'm satisfied that we have been treated to this. Now, in terms of your question, Judy, about being outside the houses in terms of protesting, I have never been protested at my home. However, I have been protested at WAMC. And I tell you, you can get pretty hot under the collar when people are marching around in a circle in front of your door saying bad things about you. I think we all can recognize that. I may be the only one in the room who has ever been subjected to that, but it was something, and you get a little bit, I don't know how to say it, aggressive. In other words, what you don't want to do is punch somebody in the mouth because they are protesting you, because that would become an even bigger victory for them in a news story. But so, the question isn't yeah. whether we should be protesting, but how do we cover it? How did your station cover protests? Who was protesting, and how was it covered? I have a sinking feeling based on your question, only because of my memory. I don't remember what we did, but I suspect we didn't do anything. It was a smallish group, and they just came and they marched around for a little while, and they left. Tough nuggies. But is focusing on the protests missing the forest from the trees? Everything about this story is another story. The protests are part of the story. The leak is definitely a story. I want to know who leaked it. It's intensely interesting. Whether we're focusing on the leak and the protests in lieu of something else, that's a story, too. None of this is out of bounds or off record. No. And I, I could add some other things that I would like to see more of, like the Republicans are getting lots of the blame right now, but Democrats have had 50 years to codify the law, and they're doing it now when it's hopeless, when Manchin is standing in the way, and they knew that was going to happen. Incredibly stupid. Not on our side, the Democratic side, I would say. And that needs to be covered. And why has it been allowed to get to this point? And what happens next? And will the filibuster go as a way to bring about a national abortion ban? All of this is intense interesting. We cannot write enough about Roe v. Wade. I would agree with you, Rosemary, on many different aspects of this that need to be focused on, that the protests are a smallish part of it. And I want to know, and I want the public to know, what's happening in the states, what's going to happen nationally that's going to affect mm -hmm. all the people. What does it mean to me? And we need to be telling, what does it mean to me as a citizen, as a woman or a man, and uh, when we slide back and do the easy stuff covering a protest or we're writing about the mm -hmm. leaks, we have to be careful that we're not dismissing the more important issues of what this is going to mean. Right, and who it's going to affect. And the primary coverage we've seen in the past week or so, you've seen the Republicans really continue to avoid the topic. And the press continues to focus on whether or not someone was a Trump-endorsed candidate and not whether or not they like or they support abortion rights or they want to ban it entirely. At the same time, this Roe versus Wade decision has renewed discussions in newsrooms about what reporters or what journalists should be able to do in terms of expressing their opinions about something. We saw a couple of news organizations issue memos reminding people to not say where they stand on, on this issue or another. And so how do you all feel about what journalists' position should be on this one? Say they don't cover abortion. Should they be allowed to offer an opinion, have a bumper sticker, go to a march? 
Well, I feel like this is like an old-fashioned issue. I don't care about it anymore, Judy, to tell you the truth. I don't care if they give their opinion or not. If they do, tell me why so you're upfront about it. If you don't, okay, just give me all the facts that you have. But this is hugely important to the future of this country. It's definitely about women. We know that, but it's more than that. If it leads to the downfall of the filibuster, if it leads to changes in administrations across the country and at the state level, and, and then to further demolition or fights for rights, for gays, for transgendered people, name it. The implications of this are so big, at least as big as the Russian war. And I don't care. This is not about journalists. It's not even about media coverage. It's hard to imagine that we can do this right or wrong because there's going to be so much coverage. Rosemary, let me try to enter a fight with you if I can. Oh, good. I'm itching for it. Ding, round one. Let's go. (laughs) It's as big as the war, but there is the possibility that the Russians are going to bring small nuclear weapons into Ukraine. Now, if they do that, it seems to me that could symbolize or could mean the end of the world Mm -hmm. as we know it. So therefore, I think we have to be very careful about understanding just how important what is going on in Ukraine is. I I mean, of course I know that. And I would add further that forget the Russians, we're going to burn ourselves up through climate change and inactivity on it. And that has planetary implications Mm -hmm. also. So the problem is we have these old-fashioned discussions about, should we take a stand on this? What should we be covering this or this? Those are all out of date. we got to cover all of this, and we have to cover it at top speed Mm -hmm. and at top form. And circling back to what I think one of the questions you were asking, Judy, is what should we be asking of our journalists and taking positions. And the pendulum has swung for me where I think it's okay to be and important to be an advocate and allow your feelings to be known and to be a participant in things, depending on what you're, if you're the person actually covering it, I think you have to take a step back. But if you're a citizen whose job happens to be a journalist, you should be able to be a participating journalist. You need to show through the quality of your work that you are even-handed in your coverage. But, but we all know that reporters, when they write their stuff, just the way that they have a first paragraph or a sentence can pretty well lead the discussion or lead the reader to their side of things. That is possible, and that's where editors have a responsibility to make sure that it's not imbalanced, which I don't mean false equivalencies. Yeah. I think deciding what story to do is the first step in your bias or your decision whether or not to cover something. But on the abortion issue, I just thought that even though we knew this was coming and we had known for the probably, you know, the fight over Kavanaugh, the fight over every Supreme Court nominee in the recent years has always had the fear in the background that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. It still, it came as a surprise and I surprised to me that it actually happened and I wondered what people who are in support of women's rights, what they didn't do or what the media didn't do to convey that accurately. I mean, did we try enough to get that point across and why was it such a big surprise? I'm not yep. sure that it was. I wasn't I, no more than I heard the same thing about, right. oh, the Russian invasion was a surprise. No, it wasn't. We talked about it for weeks ahead of time, as soon as troops began massing, as soon as the Supreme Court began lining up according to the Trump-McConnell vision of we're going after Roe v. Wade. We knew about it. We wrote about what can we do? What can we do now? Even that we know that the decision is about to come down officially. What can reporters do? What can people do who hate this? Well, Not a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, well, but, you know, having great respect for people like you, Rosemary. I know that you get in there and you find out some of the, I wanted to use the word trivia, but it's not trivia, about the way in which decisions are reached. 
who's on what side and why, and you know how reporters arrive at their decisions. I think that that's the kind of thing that we here on the Media Project, for example, mm-hmm. should be talking about. Yeah. I mean, this whole movement against Roe v. Wade has been, well, 50 years in the making, and it has been closely followed by journalists. The justices usually don't talk, but they've been pretty open about their views on this in publishing and in speeches. Is it any surprise to us that Alito wrote this? He's been... No. Oof. So it's spring, and this is the time of year when Pulitzer Prizes are announced, and they have been Mm. announced, and a lot of great work was recognized. But I think we're an industry that does do a lot of prize giving. Maybe it's just the time of year, but it seems like there's prizes all over the place. Maybe other industries do the same thing, but we do it as well. But a story has surfaced about a Pulitzer Prize given in 1932 to a New York Times reporter named Walter Durante. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his work covering Stalin's Russia, and especially Stalin during a time when they were systematically starving the people of Ukrainians and Russians themselves. They say as many as three million Ukrainians died and a million Russians died. And for that work, he received a Pulitzer Prize. There's been discussion back maybe 20 years ago about whether or not the Pulitzer Board should rescind that prize or the New York Times should give it up. And at the time, they said, no, we're not giving it up. The Times publisher then said that he had concluded that stripping Durante's work of the award would be like airbrushing history. But now Bill Keller, who was an editor of the Times a few years ago, he thinks even though we could leave this up as a teachable moment, he thinks the time has come to really take this prize away. And so my question is, should this prize be taken away given what we know about the truth of what happened in Ukraine during the Stalin years and the fact that the coverage, while probably not intentionally skewed, was skewed and was wrong? You know, I should have studied more before this program about that. (laughs) (laughs) About the particulars there. But I think that, you know, once you go back and change something in history, it changes everything. And I'm a great believer in leaving well enough alone. I know that because I've read a lot of Superman comics in my day, and I know what kind of hell can happen when you change history because then you have to change everything else that came after it. It's a concern. The newspaper industry and all of journalism's top ethical concern is accuracy. Reporting that won a Pulitzer Prize in the 1930s has been shown to be basically propaganda commanded by Stalin to be published. It needs to be pulled. And it's not a precedent setting. Who is the woman who wrote the Jimmy story, the fake story? Right in the Washington Post. In the Washington Post. And when that story was exposed as a fake, she wrote about a nine-year-old alleged drug addict. It was all totally made from whole cloth, great fiction. And that Pulitzer was pulled, as well it should be. And the New York Times, defending its record, really just has to rub you the wrong way. They have... A record of doing these big sweeping wrong stories in Iraq and it does not help the credibility of the whole field that these things were made. A record mm-hmm. is not made by two terrible reporters whose stuff got by the editor. Come on, big giant stories. I'm, I'm with Ann Alkebaum on this and I'm a big fan of hers and her pieces in the Atlantic and she's on the Pulitzer board now and her conclusion is kind of like Alan's and kind of like mine that if you start to pull back something that was 90 years old, this particular case, she says it can be fraught to start reassessing past judgments through the lens of the present was the way that was reported. And you could start going back and looking at so many different stories. And, you know, Bill Keller is, was saying um, in reference to this issue that the Pulitzer Prize is not just for what you did and what you wrote or photographed or drew, but that it has to do with, it implies a larger sense of responsibility and accuracy and work by the reporter, diligence, whatever. And 
When you read the Pulitzer Prize descriptions and what they get awarded for, it does not go beyond the scope of what they won their prize for. For me, it tarnished the brand. It tarnishes the Pulitzer. I think if they really want to uphold the integrity, they should pull it. You know, we're an industry that prides ourselves on correcting errors when we find them, and this yeah. is an egregious error that I thought should be corrected. So could I mean, it just be an asterisk award? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one way to do it. I mean, there, there's a whole record of these. The AP won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on American atrocities committed during the Korean War, and then subsequently it was found that one of their sources posed as someone who was there, and he was. It was completely incredible. That Pulitzer was not pulled, and they should be. Like you say, we have so many prizes. Oh, yeah. People don't trust journalists otherwhere. This is not a case of being inaccurate in a few details. He was a tool of Stalin, and that can't stand. Can I ask yes, you one other thing yeah. I, before we get off the Pulitzers? And you alluded to it when you introduced this topic was... I just thought it was terrific how there were so many different types of news organizations or publishing organizations. Some of them weren't actually like mainstream news type of organizations that won Pulitzers and that it's a testament to efforts being made to tell stories that are award-winning through different online outlets. Right. There was good variety this year, but the main people, the Washington Post, New York Times, still won their Pulitzers. And when I looked at what won Pulitzers in journalism, you really have to have an army of journalists. You have to have resources behind you to do this kind of work. Every once in a while, a, a small local paper will win a Pulitzer, but they really just don't have the resources. They'll, they'll win it if there's like a natural disaster that they bravely cover, then right. you give it to the local ways. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it, all the investigative explanatory stuff went to an interesting place. It was actually a, an interest group wrote the story. Mm -hmm. That was kind of intriguing. Right. I thought that was terrific. Yeah. And that explanatory journalism, which just the wor those words can make people's eyes glaze over, is so important and valuable. And that should be a lesson to mainstream media mm -hmm. that maybe we need to be doing more about that. And there was also a special Pulitzer for the Ukrainian journalists, which, you know, I, I recognize that mm. they're doing yeoman's work. I thought about that. But, you know, there are journalists in a lot of countries in war that I wondered why didn't mm. the Pulitzer Board do all the journalists in conflict? Because certainly Ukrainian... Nobel did that this year. Yeah, yeah right. As, yeah, that's a good yeah, point. It's not like they're being ignored. No, but it's a brilliant... I think it's a brilliant point that we get political. We get our values into all of this. And, you know, when we start talking about what's going on in Ukraine as opposed to any other place, political decisions have to be made as to whether we're going to put our emphasis here. Anyway, I could go on. Speaking of political, so Elon Musk, the soon-to-be king of Twitter, says former President Donald Trump's lifetime Twitter ban should be reversed. Banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice, but it will amplify it among the right, and this is why it's morally wrong and flat-out stupid. This is what Musk said. But there are problems, including Truth Social, so that's Trump's alternate Twitter business. Is it really a good idea for him to say, yeah, I'll go back on Twitter? He says he won't, but most people think he probably will. At one point, he had 80 million followers. So it raises the question of will he go back? But the other question is, is it really a good idea for Twitter to ban people? Trump was banned on January 8th, 2021, and they said at the time he had been permanently suspended due to the risk of further incitement of violence. If you remember, January 6th is when the uh, rioters stormed the Capitol. Here's some other people who've been permanently banned from Twitter. There are some people I didn't recognize, but Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene, Steve Bannon, David Duke, 
Alex Jones, Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell, Mike Lindell, and Roger Stone. So should people be permanently banned from Twitter? Are there cases in which this is justified? Well, one wants to think so. In other words, as far as I'm concerned, Trump is one of the worst miscreants we have ever had in the history of this country. And if he had his way, we would not be a democracy anymore. Therefore, he's a terrible guy. Nevertheless, I think your point that you've just raised is correct. You start banning people because of what they did or what they said. You alter history. You alter journalism. I have deep troubles with it. I can argue it either way. And so well, because Alan took one you. spot, I'm going to take the opposite, which is some people do need to be banned because they spread evil, harmful misinformation. Interesting about the list, they're all political. They're all Trumpers. There's nobody on the list. Like Robert Kennedy Jr. should be off Twitter. He spreads awful information about disease and vaccines. And a lot of the anti-vaxxers ought to be banned for life, too, because what they do is dangerous and bad. But we don't cover and print these people in the same way. Why would we give them power to do harm, which is what they're doing? On the other hand, Twitter is private. Let them on. I get off at the minute Trump comes back on or Elon Musk actually wins this uh, wins this prize he's after. It's looking a little more so, doubtful financially right now, so I don't know. But, I mean, it's the right. It's not the government shutting them up. It's a private company. So if Hitler— Yeah, he should not be on Twitter either. <laughs> So, so, so if Hitler said Stalin either. Stalin, I take him off. Yeah. So Duterte, uh, Marcos, the past and the present. Here's the whole problem. Twitter has not made clear what you got to do to get on their permanent ban list. Mm. They keep fudging it. In fact, they fudged it for Trump for and years. And now they won't even have a permanent ban <coughs> Yeah, exactly. under Musk. Exactly. And, um, so he's saying, oh, permanent bans are bad, but he doesn't really have them anymore. Twitter doesn't really have them anymore. So it's all wishy-washy, and that's why we're having this debate, I think, about what they should do. Well, then the bigger issue is the only way to control or to attempt to control what a private publishing entity does is to have government, government regulation. Rules. And that yeah. scares that. me more than yep. saying, okay, Twitter under Elon Musk is a mess and you know, beware of what you're reading mm -hmm. and tweeting and retweeting. And Well, you know, there is one other thing beside government regulation. That's the marketplace. So you let Trump on, you let Robert Kennedy Jr. on and all the other wackos out there and people will leave. And they already are starting to leave. Well, well on Twitter some a people bit. will leave. Other people, they may not really leave, they but they're lurk. just going to be, yeah, you know, that's that's watching. not leaving. Yeah, I and mean, other people leave. will join. I think more people will join, yeah. and, and that's more advertising for their company. You know, you got to wonder what Truth Social will do. Will it ban people permanently oh, who cares? as well? I know it's such. Trump's Truth Social network is not doing well. Even Trump, he'll go on to tweet one of his candidates wins a primary, but he is not on Truth Social very much. But he thinks he's going to make a lot of money on this. So one of the things that will kill social media platform, I think, is too much well, advertising. Let's stop and talking about him and that <laughs> truth social, please. Yeah, and he doesn't tweet. They do truth. It's so interesting. Our listener has written in and suggested we talk about Jen Psaki. This was an Eric Wemple column in the Washington Post where he talked about, you know, her reaction and whether her departure from the administration and her likely arrival fairly soon at MSNBC and the ethical questions it, it raises. Wemple looked at some hard numbers about whether or not there truly has been favoritism since the first of the year. He didn't do an exhaustive one to NBC or potential employers. Mm. Um, 
also raised the issue was like, would it have killed Jen Psaki just to hold off on job discussions until she left the office? A good point. Mountain out of a molehill. Mountain out of a molehill. I'm you know, with you. You know, I want the bigger story. I don't have an answer to yet. Why does she want to leave Biden? I mean, okay, all I ever hear is, oh, she always said she wasn't going to stay long. But they all say they're not going to stay long. Why? Well, she's she probably getting it? a lot of money. Yeah, but Did we hear that? But there's more to life than money, and this is a, like a chance for of you. A life. There may be, but for her, there may not be. I've always denounced these revolving doors in administrations. Right. It's bad. Back in the old days, people would stay for a full term, maybe even for a second term. Right. The idea of staying for a year, it takes six months to actually learn the job to do it well. I'm not discounting how Saki's done her job. She's, I think, she's returned some sanity to press conferences. Uh, she's no Kaylee McEnany, right? She was the president. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Wemple went to Fox News, and before she did, favored Fox News overwhelmingly in all sorts of ways. Number of interviews she gave that she allowed to be had with the president. And I don't remember us ever discussing in the media project her ethical lapses. It's, yeah. it's the Democrats' ethical lapses. Thank God we're doing it now. Just, yeah, really. Well, as Wemple concludes in his column, he goes, those lapses make Saki's problems look like the press relations equivalent of snipping off a mattress tag. That is a great, <laughs> a great analogy. Right, because her appearances and administration appearances on the different stations was Very uh, was even handed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, unlike, and I don't want to get sucked into the whataboutism, but they were worse than this one. Just looking at her by itself. I thought that she still was even-handed in her coverage, and it's unrealistic to think that somebody in a job is not going to be talking to other people that might be hiring them. But still, it doesn't negate the fact that nine of the 11 past White House press secretaries went on to some sort of TV role. And you have to think that every time they grant an interview to a reporter, to a, especially a TV reporter, that they're they're ginning for a, a job down the road. You see this with all sorts of sources. You see it with generals, especially nowadays with the coverage of the Iraq war. You see it with a lot of people who make that conversion. And you just have to wonder whether or not there is favoritism because they're trying to get a job down the line. Let's talk about leaks. Have we talked about leaks before? Specifically those involving the top secret intelligence leaks that the U.S. is giving Ukraine in its defense of the Russian invasion. First, it was the New York Times saying that the U.S. has provided Ukrainian officials with details of Russian movements that they have subsequently combined with their own information and used to target and kill Russian generals. And then NBC came out with a report saying that U.S. intelligence helped Ukrainian officials locate the Russian flagship in the Black Sea, which they sank. So there are plenty of people, even apparently President Biden, unhappy with the press for writing these stories. But from the beginning, this war has been marked by a fairly high amount of intelligence, most of it being openly given. So what's going on now, and why are people criticizing the press for continuing to cover these? Like well, Biden should? might want, from Biden's point of view, he may want it both ways. He gets credit for helping the Ukrainians. If he helps the Ukrainians and nobody knows about it, what does it mean? But if he helps the Ukrainians and it gets leaked that this is going on, this is a whole different story. I think Biden, people may be some of the leakers who want to make sure he gets the credit for it. 
And the press wants it both ways. Sure. We want to write interesting stories. The war is now going into its what, right. third month, and uh, stories of survivors and bombing and survival are getting boring. We want something new. So it's the U.S. government leaking the stuff. On the other hand, when you have a war, we know that there are troop movements. We do not project the troop movements. That's completely anti-patriotic. It, even even I, who am for completely open records, would never do something like that. And this is getting perilously close to that. I think that the reporters are right to be listening to the White House. Make them work for it, but if there's a legitimate reason that they're saying don't publish, we should not be publishing. Barb? I tend to agree with what Rosemary's saying there, but you really have to weigh what's a legitimate yeah. national interest, what's in our safe, mm. what's in the interest of the safety of Americans, of Ukrainians, and there's no one black or white correct answer about you're, that. You're right, and to me, the interesting point, Barbara, is that it's Putin is fooled by this. Putin doesn't know we're leaking the material. <laughs> right, right. So, oh, like the Americans are not involved. So we're we're not really in a war with them. And yet, if it's if it's in the New York Times, if Tom Friedman publishes it, it's like, whoops, the Americans are involved. We got to bomb them. Come on, it doesn't really work that way. And so, yeah, as an editor, you'd be weighing all that. But to poo-poo the White House and say you have no right to tell us what to print, this is not the time I would be doing that. Well, that's all the time we have. Oh, Judy, this. you did a terrific job today. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks to Alan, Rosemary, and Barbara. And thanks to our producer, David Gustina. I'm Judy Patrick. Thanks for joining us. See you next week on The Media Project. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, ting-ling-ling, newspaper guild, got a free new world to build, meet the people, that's a thrill, all together fits the bill. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Judy Patrick is the Vice President for Editorial Development for the New York Press Association. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>